Thank you, Blair and Avery, for leading us in musical worship. And I also want to welcome Lauren Klink back with us. Good to have you back worshiping with us, Lauren. Lauren was gone for six weeks over in Europe, so glad that you're back with us safely. And trust that God gave you a wonderful life experience there. In the church, we uh, care deeply about relationships. We care about the being one family, one community under God. And as you read through the Bible, it, it really is a book that helps us to understand different kinds of human relationships and helps us to learn how to navigate those relationships. There are many different kinds of relationships. There's the, the father-son, the mother-daughter, and you can do that different ways, parent-child. There's friendships. There's official relationships like a governor and the governed. But the primary relationship in the Bible is the marriage relationship. In the Bible, of all the human relationships that there are, God says that the primary, the, the foundational relationship is between a husband and a wife. The reason that the husband and wife relationship is primary uh, over and above every other kind of relationship is, well, perhaps two reasons, and there might be more, but here, here are two. One, it was the first relationship. So God created Adam, and then he created a woman for Adam, Isha. She was later named Eve. So that might be it. it maybe it's primary because it's chronologically first. But actually, if you continue to read the Bible, and it unfolds even in the Old Testament, but it becomes absolutely clear in Ephesians chapter 5 that the marriage relationship is primary because it, better than any other relationship, communicates what God wants to say to us about our relationship with Him. That we become the bride of God. That's language in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5, we're the bride of Christ. Now, there are other relational metaphors as well. He is our master, we are his slave. Uh, he is our father, we are his sons, whether you're male or female, sons of position, of inheritance. Uh, but we're sons and daughters, I guess, if we want to expand that. We, we receive the inheritance. So there's others, but the primary relationship between God and his people is one of a husband and a wife. What we're going to see in today's text as we continue going through Romans chapter 7 is that there are two kinds of spiritual marriage in the Bible. I mean, I suppose we could make this a little bit more uh, varied, but as far as relating to God, there are two kinds of marriages. One is a bad marriage, and the other is a good marriage. There's few things as painful as a strained marriage, and few things, if anything, bring as much joy as a good marriage. So when it comes to our marriage with God through Christ, my exhortation that we're going to see today is let's, let's choose, by God's grace, the good marriage. Let's pray. God, I, I pray as we take a look at this text in Romans chapter 7, help us to choose the good marriage, bring about the good marriage in our lives. I thank you, Lord, for the gospel, which is a good marriage through Christ. As we take a look at this illustration that you have given to us in your scripture, help us to understand it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in this relationship with you as your bride. Help me to preach your word this morning and help us to sit under the preaching of your word and would it change us. Lord, I pray for those who are still in the bad marriage 
and don't know it, that you would give them new life. Bring them into the good marriage, which is through Christ. And for those of us who are walking with Christ, bound to Him in a marriage relationship, filled by the Spirit, help us to walk ever closer to our heavenly husband. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're going to be reading today verses 1 through 6. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. This is the Word of God. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Oh God, I thank you for your word, and this is your word. Help us to understand it. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So we are in the book of Romans. We're halfway through the third major section, which is on sanctification. So to contextualize ourselves in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 3. That is, those chapters are about wrath and propitiation. That None of us have an excuse. We, we all know there's a God, and we've all worshipped the creation rather than the creator. Or if we know about his law, we haven't kept it. So the wrath of God is rightly coming against us. And then there's the propitiation. But for those of us who give our sin to Christ, the wrath that we deserve falls on Christ and God's wrath is propitiated. Propitiation means satisfied. It won't fall to us because it's already been exhausted against our sin on Christ as he hung on the cross and we with him there. Chapters 4 and 5, uh, Paul introduces justification. You have therefore been justified by grace through faith. Justification is to be declared righteous by God. So although we have an infinite sin debt, justification says that God has paid off, redeemed, that's redeemed is purchase language, he has redeemed that debt and paid it off himself. That brings us to neutral, but that's not the end of justification. He has then credited to our account the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see infinite sinners. He sees infinitely righteous people positionally before the tribunal of heaven. That's amazing. 
But then we get to chapter 6 and 7. It just, in my opinion, keeps getting better. Sanctification is chapter 6 and 7. That's where we are now. And, and this, sanctification, is to be crucified with Christ. That is, your, your sin nature dies. Then you are born again. You're regenerated. You're, you're given a new heart. And so now righteousness is worked out in your very nature. So justification is righteousness in your, your legal position before God. Sanctification is a transformation of your nature so that you become righteous in your nature. And then as we have seen and will continue to see, uh, that needs to be worked out over a lifetime. Chapter 8 is glorification. And, and glorification really is part of sanctification. It's the goal. Glorification is when, when you throw off this body, your soul is glorified. That is, you ascend to heaven to be with Christ. There's no sin nature left for you to battle with. But then, glorification is not over with heaven. When Christ returns, your body, the body that you're in now that was thrown off, put in the ground, will be raised incorruptible, immortal, imperishable, in power. And you'll never sin again, and you will have a body just like Christ. So that's glorification. Then chapters 9 through 11 is election. Why did God choose Israel and not other nations? Why did God choose some people and not others? Get to that in chapters 9 through 11. So that's Paul's fullest treatment of the gospel in all the Bibles. Romans 1 to 11. Then you have the last major section, chapters 12 through 16, which says, in light of these things, live this way. So, behavior flows directly out of belief. What you believe will translate into how you behave. So what you believe, chapters 1 to 11, will, will necessitate how you behave, chapters 12 through 16. So you have two major parts, chapters 1 through 11, orthodoxy, chapters 12 through 16, orthopraxy. Do you feel you're getting a handle on this big picture of Romans? Yes? Yeah? Okay, we'll keep doing it, but you're going to be teachers of the book of Romans by the time we're done this at Christmas time. That's my Christmas gift to you. I'm wrapping it up for you in July. You will be teachers of Romans. You will know this book. In today's text, the first thing to notice is right off the top. Do you see it there? Chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know? Does that sound familiar? Do you not know? If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll know that this is the third time that Paul asks that question. Do you not know? Go back to chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know? You see it there? And then look at verse 16. Do you not know? So from, from a structural point of view, these three do-you-not-know questions are all bound together. So whatever it is that we're going to find out this week, do you not know? We might not know it, but after it's preached to you, you will know it. You'll say, yes, I do now know. So these three do-you-not-know questions are Paul's way of introducing a threefold answer to the question that he gives us at the beginning of chapter 6. Which means that what we're talking about now is going to be answering the question that we've been dealing with for the last two weeks. Let's take a look at that question. What is the main question of this section? It's in chapter 6, verse 1. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. If, if God is going to lavish grace upon us, if, if we are justified, declared righteous by God according to the things that we believe and not according to the things that we do, why not go on sinning? That's the main question of this whole section. He repeats a similar question. It's almost exactly the same in verse 15. So what I'm doing here is showing you how all of these verses fit together. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? The answer is exactly the same way. By no means. So in verse 15, by no means. In verse 2, by no means. God forbid, may it never be. So, so we know the short answer. The short answer is, should we keep on sinning so that God's grace can cover an overabundance of sin to his glory? Because the more we sin, the more grace is required, and the more grace that God pours out, the more glory to his name. So with that logic intact, you might conclude, let's just keep sinning to the glory of God. Because the more I sin, the more grace I need, the more grace I receive, the more glory God gets. I'm going to glorify God by sinning more. Paul says no. God forbid, some translations, by no means. So these last three weeks have been trying to help us to understand, well, what's the logic? Why, why wouldn't you keep on sinning? I just want to review what precipitated this question in the first place. See, one of the challenges of preaching a book like Romans is we get a few weeks down the road and we forget sort of where we've come and we forget why we're asking this question in the first place. So very quickly, let me just refresh your memory. Go up to chapter 5, verse 20. Paul here is going to address why did God give the law? One sin by one man in the Garden of Eden was enough to condemn everyone, so why give us 613 more laws? we might be tempted to say that God gave us the law to restrain our sin. The problem is, the more laws there are to break, the more times we break them, the more we become sinners, and that doesn't restrain sin, it multiplies it. So why would God do that? That's, that's how we end justification. Verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came, that is God gave the law through Moses to increase the trespass, to make us greater sinners, to, to increase our guilt in the heavenly tribunal. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 21 gives us the reason. Why would God do that? Even though sin reigned in death, the more we trespass, the more we sin, the greater our guilt became, the greater the suffering of, of human beings. But it also afforded God the, the greater opportunity to extend his grace through Jesus Christ. Uh, the image I use is if I have a glass vase here and I just crack it, it would be impressive if I could fix that crack. But if I smash that vase on the ground and then fix it, that's even more impressive. That's what God's doing with the law. He's smashing the human race. 
And then through Jesus Christ, he says, I'm going to put that back together to his glory. So you can see then justification makes you wonder, well, if that's what God wants to do, if God wants to multiply sin, let's give him a hand. And Paul says, no, no. But Paul cannot answer the, this question, should we then help God by multiplying sin, by going out and sinning more, he cannot give us a logical reason why we should not sin more by appealing to the doctrine of justification. Because justification is about our position in heaven that we get not by works but by grace through faith. So it doesn't matter how much you sin according to justification. Every sin will be covered. Be assured of that according to the doctrine of justification. But there's no logical reason under the doctrine of justification why we should stop sinning. Which is why the doctrine of sanctification is so important. What does Paul want us to know about sanctification? Well, it's these do you not know questions which are really assertions about sanctification. So let's take a look at the two that we've reviewed so far and get to this third one. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. We were spiritually baptized into the death of Christ. See it there in, in verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And so what Paul says there is we, we cannot keep sinning because our, our sin nature was crucified with Christ. We were, we were mysteriously but actually killed with Christ. And, and in that whole section, as he's developing that do you not know right there that you were crucified with Christ, he says you've died and been born again. He doesn't use that language, but that's what he's saying. You've been made holy in your nature. Therefore, this is not a question about could we or should we keep on sinning. This is, this is a statement of you cannot keep sinning. It's impossible. If your sin nature is dead and you have a new nature, then you cannot keep sinning, which creates some tension. Then in verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And, and in this do you not know section, Paul is saying, do you want to know if you've been sanctified and are being sanctified? Well, do you obey sin or do you obey Christ? Because if you've been sanctified, you're a slave of Christ. How do you know if you're a slave of Christ? Well, you obey him. If you are not obeying Christ, if your deepest desire is not for righteousness, then you're not saved. So you can appeal to justification all you want. You're not saved, and justification won't cover you. If you want to know if justification is yours, ask yourselves, are you a slave of sin or are you a slave of Christ? And now we get to the third do you not know in this section, which is chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person 
not binding on a person who has died. Take a look at it. Chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So he says, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law? In other words, this question is directed to the Jewish Christians in Rome. But it's not only for them. It's just basically he's saying, you, Jewish Christians, should know this. This is something you should know, and you can help your Gentile brethren understand it. So this is for all of us, but he, he's tipping his hand. This is something that a Jewish Christian should understand, and by extension, all of us need to learn. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now this is where my review ha has been necessary. What did we affirm back up in chapter 6, verse 3? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What does it mean that to be baptized into his death? And we went over this last week, but it, it means this, and I can't explain it too fully. You have to go and listen to it. But it means that somehow God has taken our, us and he has joined us with Christ. We're united with Christ in that very moment when Christ died on the cross and his death actually became our death. And when you became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you died in that moment and you were born again in that moment. So from that, that moment on, death is in your past. You are already in eternal life. You're dead and you've been made alive again. So though you still have uh, to throw off your body and then to receive your body back, you're over the hump of death. It's in your past. Okay, so that's two sermons ago. Now, look at this. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? That is up until the point of death. Once you have died, the law can't reach you. It can't touch you. The extent of its jurisdiction is death. Death can claim you, or the law can claim you only so far as it can kill you. After the, the law kills you, it cannot touch you. So if God was to raise you back to life on the other side of that death, the law has no power over you. I was uh, on my 40th birthday, went to see the Lion King. And Mufasa takes Simba and says, everything the light touches is our kingdom. And Simba says, well, what about that shadowy place? Well, that's beyond our borders. Think of it that way. The law has jurisdiction over a certain part of life, but once you die, that's beyond the jurisdiction. The Lion King had no authority in that elephant graveyard where the hyenas live. The law has no authority on a person who has died and come back to life. The law cannot touch you on the other side of death. Therefore, the law is no longer binding on Christians. Paul now gives an illustration to explain what he means. Because what Paul does not mean, let me just show you what he does not mean. He does not mean go and break the law then. That's not where he's going. But, but before we died with Christ, the law said to us externally, you must do this. 
and not do that. And we were expected to do it, though we couldn't do it. That relationship with the law is gone. And the condemnation of the law is over. The law cannot condemn us anymore. Here's the illustration in verses 2 and 3. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. This is not a very difficult illustration to understand. It's more difficult to apply. But the illustration itself is fairly simple. The law says, once you are married, you are married until one of you dies, till death do you part. Now, I know that divorce is a reality, and there's grace. For those who have been in a marriage, and, and, and you've been divorced, and now you're married again, there's grace. Praise be to God. If you've gone through, through the, the path of repentance and asked for the grace of God, there's grace. So don't, don't check out just because... This is a marriage metaphor. There's grace for the divorced and the remarried. But ideally, under the law, a man and a woman come together and they make vows to one another until death do them part. So if, if a woman goes and lives with another man while she's still married to her husband, she's an adulteress. But if her husband dies and she goes and lives with another man, there's nothing wrong with that. The law says that is fine. I think we all understand this. So what's the application of this? Just so we, we know, um, we're going to play the part of the bride as Paul begins to apply this illustration to us. And this is where I said at the beginning, there's two kinds of marriages. One is a bad marriage, and the other is a good marriage. So let's see how Paul applies this. Chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, so likewise, he's saying this applies to the Christian and, and helps us to understand sanctification. He's trying to answer why we should not just go out and sin more. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So let's just walk through this very carefully, and I think if we just put every piece in play as we go, it, it's not that hard to understand, actually. So the Jews were bound to the law, and so were Gentiles who knew the law, but covenantally it was Israel that was bound to the law as in a marriage. That's what happened uh, on Mount Sinai. God entered into a covenant with his people, and the covenant was based around the law that God had given to Moses. And so when the nation of Israel covenanted with God, they were also making a covenant to the law. They were married to the Mosaic law. In the same way that a woman is bound to her husband while he is alive. So that's the marriage, Israel to the law. Now, the death of Christ severed that marriage to the law. 
This is where it gets a little bit tricky because in the illustration, it's the husband who dies. But what we're seeing here is there's something about the death of Christ, and he is our husband, so that's where it works. But the death of our heavenly husband, Jesus Christ, severed our marriage to the law. And it's us, go back to chapter 6, verse 3, it's us who die, not the law that dies. We in Christ die to the law. So in a marriage, when one of the, the, the husband or the wife, when one of them dies, then the marriage is over and both parties are free in that sense, although the dead party has little that they can do about that. But we died. We died in Christ so that the, our marriage to the law was broken. And from this point forward, rather than being bound to the law, sanctified believers are bound in a covenant of marriage to Christ. And whereas marriage to the law resulted in death, marriage to Christ bears fruit for God. Verses 5 and 6, then, are going to compare and contrast a life bound to the law versus a life bound to Christ. So, so this is, just to put it in different language, Israel and God-fearing Gentiles who know the law and want to come into a relationship with the God of Israel through the law in Old Covenant times are bound in a marriage relationship to the law. Okay. Christ comes under the law, so he bound himself to the law perfectly. He was a perfect marriage partner to the law. And he takes us into himself and takes the law into himself and crucifies both us and the law on the cross. Then Jesus comes back to life and we are raised up with him. We are born again in, when we are called, and our bodies will be raised when he returns for us. So we've got part one of two parts in our own new birth and resurrection. So at that moment when we die with Christ and are raised, we are now no longer married to the law. We are free to marry another. And who do we marry? We marry Jesus Christ. So, at the end of the day, this is what you need to know. We who were married to the law are now married to Christ. So what, what difference does that make? And how did we go from being married to the law to married to Christ? Through crucifixion of ourselves in Christ and the death of the law in Christ. So, what did it look like when we were married to the law. That's what verse 5 is all about. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So Paul here starts with the situation. What's the situation? While we were living in the flesh. Remember, we are not sanctified. We are not born again. We are not justified. None of these things can be given to us until we die in Christ. Until Christ dies for us and we with him and in him. So this first marriage to the law it does not take into consideration justification 
or sanctification. So this first marriage is, is this. We are entering into a covenant relationship with a marriage, part, marriage partner, which is the law, and the law says, I demand this, and we have no ability to bring that about because we have only a sin nature. But that's the marriage we're in without Christ and before Christ. So the situation is we are living in the flesh. The law is external to us. And what the Bible says in many different ways, we are totally depraved. We have a sin nature and only a sin nature. Our hearts are hearts of stone. That is, they're dead. We have no desire for our husband, the law, or for God. We do not love it. We do not love him. We do not seek to, to be a faithful partner to the law or to God. We are a wayward bride, and the Bible says all, all the time that we are adulterers, spiritually speaking. We are not faithful to the covenant of marriage to the law. That's the situation. That's what Paul means when he says living in the flesh. We have an uncircumcised, unclean, dead heart of stone, and the law is external to us. So what... What, if this was an actual marriage, you have a husband who demands everything and a wife who has no desire to do anything that her husband demands of her, what do you think the effect of that kind of a union will be? Total misery and drudgery. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing pleasing about it. And everyone looks on and says, that's awful, and I want none of that. It's a bad marriage. In fact, what we find out is this being caught in this marriage to the law compels the bride, that is us, before we are justified or sanctified, to run after and indulge all of our sinful passions. Everything that our husband says he desires from us, we refuse to give him. And we run as fast as we can in the other direction. So the law says do this. We say no way. And we find ourselves doing the very thing that the law says do not do. That's what we see here in uh, verse 5. So while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions, which are aroused by the law, were at work in our members, that is in our body, to bear fruit for death. Our hearts want to sin. That's our sinful passions. The law arouses those passions by telling us what we ought to do and ought not to do. We do not agree with the law. Not deeply. Not truly. And so as every time the law tells us not to do something, we say, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And with our bodies which includes our brains, it's a part of your body, not a part of your soul, and our bodies, our hands, our feet, our tongues. We sin. Dead hearts 
mobilizes the members of our body to sin, and this brings us death. Because part of the marriage relationship says, if you do not obey me perfectly, this is our husband, the law speaking, if you do not obey me, I'll kill you. That's part of what we agreed to at Sinai. Israel, but then we, God-fearing Gentiles, with Israel. Okay, fine, I'm gonna enter into this covenant with the law, and I know that the law says if, if I disobey him, I'm personifying the law for the sake of the illustration, if I disobey him, he'll kill me. And that's exactly what happens. That's a bad marriage. But before we blame the law for this bad marriage, here's the danger of what I just did. How dare the law do that? Who's the bad partner in this marriage? It seems to us that it's the law, right? How dare the law require something of me? How dare the law say that if I don't obey him, he'll kill me? This is where maybe the illustration breaks down because if that really was a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, that would be bad. But this is God with humanity. The bad partner in this marriage is not the law. And this is what we're going to look at next week. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, the fact that the bad partner is not the law because Paul realizes that when he's using this illustration, it does invite us to think that there's something wrong with the law. I don't want to preach next week's sermon, but let me just say this much. The problem is not with the law. It's with the bride of the law. We are the faulty partner, not the law. But it's a bad marriage. It is the, the dead heart of the sinner that makes it a bad marriage, and it is a bad marriage. It is not a good marriage for a sinful heart to be bound to the perfect external law of God. So if, if that's the extent of our religion... That's a bad religious system to be stuck in indefinitely. Now we know that God had his reasons for this period of history and even in this relationship, God was always willing to justify someone who said, God help me, I know that I'm an adulterous partner to the law and God's gracious. But that's, a, that's not a life-giving situation to be in. So the second marriage is a good marriage, and that is the marriage of the new covenant, which we see in verse 6. But now we are released from the law. Oh, praise be to God. So what Paul is saying, this marriage relationship is over. Praise be to God. We are released from that covenant of marriage to the law. Why? How? How, how do we get out of this? Having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Uh, this is amazing. Uh, and, and I don't want you to miss this. The only way out of a marriage is to die, for one of the partners to die. The law cannot die because the law is the perfect law of the eternal immortal God. So if you're waiting for the law to die, the law is not going to die. The only way out of this marriage relationship then is to die. The problem is when you die, that's the end. Then you go to the, the judgment seat of God and you're condemned and found guilty by your husband, the law. 
it's not a very good situation. So yeah, you get out of that marriage relationship by dying, but then that very marriage relationship, the law itself, condemns you into eternal hell. How is God going to solve this predicament? How is he going to uh, circle this square or square this circle? How, how is he going to get us out of this problem? And he says exactly this way, we are released from the law, how? By dying. Do you see it there? Having died to that which held us captive. But if we wait till our body starts working, then we're going to be condemned. Therefore, this is where we go back to the work we've done in chapter 6. Our death has to actually have act already occurred. We have to have actually already died. Otherwise, we are still married to the law. That's why this is not a mere metaphor. It, when I say you have died in Christ, I'm not saying hypothetically, uh, symbolically, metaphorically. I'm saying actually. It's the only way out of this bad marriage is to die. And so somehow, which I don't understand, and I can't expect you to understand it, but I believe it and I embrace it. Somehow God pinched my life, pinched the life of Christ, and put them together. And when Jesus died on the cross, I died with him, actually. I was there. And my sin nature was crucified. When? At the cross. 30 30 years in the common era, A.D. 30. There's another way to answer that question. When did I die with Christ? When I was called. We're going to see that in chapter 8. When I put my faith in Christ and was saved. Those are the two moments in the space-time continuum that God brings together. And so if we could step outside of the universe and look down, I I imagine we would see the cross in the middle and then all of these lives folded into the center. United actually with Christ on the cross. And it's in that moment on the cross when I was called out of unbelief into belief that I died and was set free, released from this bad marriage to the law. This is what makes sanctification so crucial. The gospel is not only, not merely justification. Because justification, as glorious and brilliant as it is, doesn't kill me. I have to be united with Christ, and that's not justification, that's sanctification. I die and I am born again. I've been baptized into the death of Christ and now the law cannot touch me. The law cannot condemn me because the law has already killed me. The law did what it could do to me on the cross. And so is true for you. So now when I go before God, the law can't say, kill him again. Can't kill me twice. Once. And only once. However, and I alluded to this, if we only die, then we have nothing. And that's why the second part of verse 6 is so crucial. 
So we die with Christ so that, we die to be released from this bad marriage to the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Well, how do you serve in a new way if you're dead? You don't. So the second part of sanctification is you have to be born again. At the moment that you're killed, you're also raised up in newness of life. And God gives you a new heart. Not, not metaphorically, but actually. You've been transformed in your nature so that the heart that you have is new. And in your heart, and in two weeks, we're going to nail this absolutely, but in your heart you don't sin. There's no unrighteousness in your heart. Because that is the new creature that has been born again at the moment of your crucifixion and death. And it's only by being resurrected in your heart and then, yes, we'll get to glorification, your bodies will be resurrected as well, but we've already been spiritually resurrected in our hearts. We've already been raised from the dead. And it's in that raised up new person, the new creature the new heart, it's in that place where we are now married to a new partner, the very one who died with us in him under the law. And we're no longer married to the law, we're married to Christ. Paul introduces a new aspect of sanctification here that he's going to develop more fully in chapter 8. But, but we see it here, and I want to say it. We, I'll show it to you. We're serving in a new way of the Spirit. Of the Spirit. So what Paul just hints at here, and I wouldn't be able to build a doctrine off of this, but I know the rest of the Bible, so I can bring that back into this. What Paul is introducing here, in which chapter 8 shows us fully, is he's saying that when you are crucified with Christ, your old heart dies, and you get a new heart that is a, a righteous, holy heart that always desires righteousness, Plus, you get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like, the, the wealth of the kindness, of the riches that God gives us in, in the gospel is not just justification. I love justification, but I, I'm going to kill your dead heart that will not obey. I'm going to give you a new heart that loves righteousness and cannot sin. And I'm going to throw in the Holy Spirit, God himself. And he's going to seal that new righteous heart. And he's going to dwell in you and he's going to empower that new righteous heart. And, and it's going to be his good pleasure to pump that new righteous heart. And he's going to help you to live out of that new righteous heart. And so you have a new heart in yourself and you also have God, the creator of the universe, dwelling in you, empowering you to live for God. And so we live in a new way with a new righteous heart and a new spirit, not in the old way. What's the old way? A dead heart trying to obey external rules that we hate. That's the old way. That's done. New way. Here's a new heart that loves the law. Here's the Holy Spirit filling that heart and sealing that heart and protecting that heart, empowering and pumping that heart. And implicitly, the law is no longer external the Spirit and the new heart bring the law inside. And now God says, live out of that. Do what you want to do. Do what God, the Holy Spirit, is empowering you to do. 
But do you see how this is not justification? This all has to do with what it means to be a saved human being. This is ontological. This is about our nature. This is, this is, this is puberty 2.0. We've gone through some changes when we're crucified and born again. We had to learn about the, the first time when our, we go through changes. Well, we're going through changes again. Why don't we know it? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a human creature? Well, if you've been crucified with Christ and given a new heart, there's some things we need to know. This is what it means to be human. And this, we're told, if you live out of this, you're married now, we're, we're told up higher that you've been given to, a new, to another, to, to Christ. In this marriage relationship, you live to please your husband because you agree with him about what is right and what is wrong. And your desire is for him. Over there, your desire was not for the law. But now that you've died and come back to life, and you have all these things true of you, you love your husband. You will do anything to please him. And he will serve you perfectly. In fact, where the law killed your old husband, your new husband has died to give you life. That's an amazing gospel. Amazing gospel. This is exactly what Jeremiah was talking about. Jeremiah 31. Behold, 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, a new marriage. Marriage and covenant are the, like synonyms. They're basically the same thing. I'm going to bring you into a new kind of marriage. It's not going to be like the, the covenant, the marriage that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, my marriage that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See, there it is. I was their husband. We entered into a marriage on Mount Sinai. But they broke that marriage over and over and over again. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is the marriage that I've intended for them. This is the marriage I've purposed for them. I will put my law within them. How? New heart. A new heart where the law is internal, no longer external. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Indwelling Holy Spirit. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Should we sin more that grace may abound? Not if you understand what we've just talked about. It's impossible. I know, two weeks from now we'll talk about, but I still desire sin. But at the core, right? We've got to start at the core. At the core, it's impossible to affirm that we should sin more, that grace may abound more. Because we've been sanctified. So, in summary, there's two kinds of marriage, two kinds of spiritual marriage with God. One's bad, one, the other is good. The bad marriage is the marriage of a sinful heart 
to the perfect external law. This will only bring fruit for death. Just everything about it is bad. The good marriage, though, is when a new, righteous, spirit-indwelt heart is married to Jesus Christ. That marriage will bear fruit for God. So how do we get from our marriage to the law to our marriage to Christ? How do we get from a dead, sinful heart to a a righteous, spirit-indwelled heart? The only way out of marriage is death. That's why it's absolutely crucial that in your understanding of the gospel, you know that you've already died. Otherwise, your gospel is insufficient. We were baptized into the death of Christ. And since dead people can't be married, we needed to be raised to new life. And that is sanctification. We were killed with Christ. We were raised with Christ so that we could be married to Christ. And the new righteous spirit-indwelled heart will always love our husband and seek to live for him. And that will bring fruit for God. That will bring eternal life. Therefore, after all of this, Go and die. Go and die. If you haven't yet died, if your gospel is only justification, you need to be born again. You need to be crucified with Christ. If you are struggling under the weight of sin to the point where you don't actually desire righteousness and you feel caught in a bad marriage every week you come to church every time you sit under the preaching of the word it's just guilt and condemnation it's either bad preaching or it's because you're actually in a bad marriage and I would just pray that the Holy Spirit would let you know no matter how many years you've been coming to church if you're actually in a bad marriage You've never been crucified with Christ. You've never been raised up with Christ. You've never actually loved him. You've never actually desired righteousness more than anything else. If if this doesn't resonate with your experience, you're not saved. So go and die that the bad marriage of a sinful heart to the perfect law might be done away with. Pray earnestly that you've been baptized into the death of Christ so that you might be raised to life with Christ, bearing fruit for God as a result of a good marriage by the indwelling Spirit of God. And even if you're saved, if this resonates but you're not sure, pray it again and again and again. Get on your face before God and say, Oh God, kill me with Christ that I might walk in newness of life. Let your battle against sin start there. So that when we get to chapters 12 through 16, you don't hear just a bunch of rules. A checklist of things to make yourself publicly uh, welcome in the congregation of the saints. It has to be from the inside out. 
rules kill, but the spirit-indwelled heart that loves the Lord Jesus Christ leads to eternal life. Let me pray. Oh God, there's a lot to think about here. I pray, Lord, that we would all be crucified with Christ. Kill us in Christ, with Christ, at Calvary, on the cross. And raise us up to new life. Give us righteous, spirit-indwelled hearts that are holy, that we might love the husband you have given to us and live for him. Oh, I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who died that we might live. In his name we pray. Amen.